and welcome to yet another episode of the podcast with no name that we now have, I think, officially, probably at this point, named the Alan Smithy Podcast, where we talk about tech and post-production and media creation and whatever else comes across our mind with my uh, good friend, Katie Henson and Michael Thomas, both out on the beautiful, sunny California. Michael, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Good to see both of you, but for everyone else in the audience, good to hear you again. Yeah, good to hear. Katie, you're well? I'm good. I have to admit, it's not that beautiful and sunny in California this week. It is very, very cold. It's California cold, so we're all being babies about it. Well, we have not seen the sun in like six days, and now it's cold, so there you go. And the holidays are here, so I'm guessing that you guys are ready for all things holiday. Absolutely. Get time off. We're about to hit a little bit of a slowdown, hiatusy period. It's nice. We can actually start doing some maintenance on our technology and we can just hopefully give people a bit of respite for a couple of weeks in the production cycle. Yeah, Michael, you're a new job. So do you get time off for the holiday or do they make you work? Well, when there was the negotiations going on that I already have some time that I need to take off. So I'm leaving for Hawaii on the 27th and I'll be there through the 7th. So good for you, man. Yeah. Yeah, never been there. Everyone is telling me where to go and what to do. And to be perfectly honest, my partner, my wife, Kate, her and her family planned everything. So I don't even know what islands we're on, to be honest with you. I know I'm taking a helicopter ride at some point, but everything else is in their hands and I'm A-OK with it. That sounds amazing. (laughs) Enjoy that. And I hope everyone listening has a good holiday and uh, we are not going to end the show here. This week, we're going to start with our one cool thing. One cool thing for first time listeners is exactly as it sounds. It's one cool thing that each of three of us have found for the month. And we uh, talk a little bit about it. I'm going to begin with Katie because hers would make a great Christmas gift that is in my Amazon wish list at this point. And then Michael and I are a little bit similar in a way, but Katie, take it away with your one cool thing. Absolutely. My one cool thing that I've been thinking about a little bit lately is a book that I have been giving as a gift to all my nerd friends. I read it on vacation just over a year ago. It blew me away. I couldn't put it down. I'm obsessed and I'm super into it. It's called Biography of the Pixel. It's by Alvy Ray Smith. He was one of the original founders of Pixar and he went from being a computer scientist, animator, and one of the pioneers of computer animation. And then he retired from that and became a genealogist. And the really, really cool thing about that is that he writes this book about the entire history, essentially, of CG animation like a genealogist. He goes and he really looks for who really did the innovating, not who got credit for it, who really did it. So he takes you through the science and the history of computers, computer animation, films, and then it all comes together and culminates with the making of Toy Story 1. It's oh, that's cool. an incredible book. It's a big, wrong read, but it's a great one for the holidays. It's a great one to just chip away at. It's super, super cool. So that is my one cool thing. Big shout out up to that book. It's such a good gift. And I know that I know that you all want that one for Christmas. Yeah. And it says it's free with, if you do Audible, it's on Audible, it's, it oh, looks cool. like. And yeah, 28, 30, 30 bucks, something like that. And I love the idea. It's on Kindle, but it's paperback as well. And it's one who stares at the screen all day. I don't like to read on the screen. I love to hold physical books and magazines in my hands. So um, yeah, it looks like a good read It's there. a chunky one, but man, it's so interesting. Are there pictures? I, question. I got a question about that, Katie. I don't know if you're a big Lord of the Rings person, but when the books were written, there was also another book, The Cimmerillion, and that was written mm-hmm. as like a textbook. 
right? right. It was very, I don't say black and white, but very matter of fact about the lore mythology definitions kind of thing. And then of course there's the books, which has a lot of stories in it. Mm -hmm. Do you find this to keep your attention because there's enough story or is it very much nerdy reference? Yeah, there's a really nice mix of both. I mean, I think the very beginning of the book is a lot of like tech stuff because he really just goes into like how do computers work and what is a pixel? And, but once you get past that, there's a lot of really cool, I mean, it really is written like a biography. There are pictures, there are diagrams, there is like the family tree of who and what companies and what people contributed. I think one of the things that was really cool about it that that I found was that we often find that like one person is credited for something, you know, Steve Jobs, Walt Disney, and he goes, here is over two pages, a diagram of the entire ecosystem of everyone who actually contributed to that. And oh, that's cool. I really love that because I'm I'm all about making sure that everybody who was part of something gets credited. And so he's very much about that too, which is super cool. What's yours, Scott? So mine is, uh, and I say it's kind of close to Michael's because both what Michael and I have are websites that take YouTube. I'm thinking all this stuff comes from YouTube and they package it in a very interesting way. Mine is called my80stv.com. So imagine a website that looks like an old TV set where you can go in and say what kind of category of a show you want to watch from cartoons, comedy, drama, game shows, kids, movies, music, news, soaps, special sports, talk shows, trailers. And you turn on this old TV and it just randomly brings you into these shows or events or broadcasts from the 80s. And you can flip the channel, you can go full screen. And it is one of the most crazy time sucks for anybody who either remembers the 80s or is curious about the 80s that I've ever seen. I mean, it says there's 14,000 some odd commercials on there and 1,400 uh, sporting events. So my80stv.com. Yes. It really is. But what I'm fascinated by is that is how someone was able to, they came up with the idea, but they built the site. And it works so well. And I guess this is in just real time. It is channeling YouTube and pulling this stuff in as you click through the channel selector. And similar to what you'll see with Michael, all this is happening really quickly through a website. And I'm just, it's just amazed at what you can do on a site and how fun it is. And it is literally a time suck. So uh, congratulate me later or hate me later because you will spend a lot of time on it if you care anything at all about this kind of a. I know not to click on this link right now because I know the podcast will be over. I don't know which one is a bigger time suck, Michael. What Throw yours out at us. This is a big secret I'm letting out of the bag. Don't crash the server when you go there. If anyone has watched five things, one of the editing motifs are cutaways, right? I punctuate a point that I'm making with a line of dialogue from a TV show, movie, cartoon that influenced me growing up. Uh, if you've ever seen the show Dream On in the 90s, it was based off that. But it's very difficult to find those clips. I have to research scripts. I have to th- hopefully think my memory is recalling that scene correctly and then see if I can get it online somewhere or buy the DVD or not buy the DVD. And it's very difficult to find those clips. There's an engineer who wanted to learn English and was learning that through watching American movies and TV shows. So he scripted a website that will return all hits with words or phrases that you put in there and also give you open captioning. So if you were to think, what was that movie where she said, I'll have what she's having? You can type that in and you get the scene in When Harry Met Sally where that scene is said. So now if you want to find a joke or something to punctuate a point you're making in that PowerPoint presentation you're doing, you can search for clips and then download it. And it will queue up 
as many as it can find. So you can find, oh, damn, and it'll find hundreds of them and you can audition them over and over and over. And so it's endlessly fun to see what phrases you can come up with and where those might appear in movies. So the website, I, I know everyone's like, just give me the URL. <laughs> uh, we all have questions. <laughs> it's playphrase.me playphrase.me. I have no affiliation with them. As soon as I found it within five minutes, he's on Patreon. So I threw him three bucks, which is what he was looking for. So uh, even if you spend a few minutes with this, it's hysterical. And tell him Michael sent you, even though he doesn't know who I am. As Katie pointed out, <laughs> you like folks to get recognized for the things they do. So just say Michael sent you. That is so cool. That is seven million six hundred phrases that it says uh, right now. I don't think I realized you could download it, but is it pulling all of this from YouTube? And if so, is it just got a script in the back end that downloads it? Even though that's not supposed to be a thing for YouTube. There's a button I think in the lower left to a down or the lower right. It says the title of the media piece. I don't know what the back end is. I suppose you could try and download it and then get media info and look at the writing library. I don't know where it's from and I'm not going to ask. Yeah, it's it's too great. But I still wonder like how, so on yours is if it's a clip or a movie on YouTube, which may be legal, may not be legal. Perhaps it's got advertising on it. Is it using the, do you think the auto transcription that YouTube has generated to search these phrases out because we were talking about how this is done and you mentioned metadata and tagging in our chat, but if someone didn't type in the entire film. I don't know. I'm just, I don't know. I don't know there's, what I'm asking. There's it's amazing be, that it works. There could be referencing multiple databases. It could only maybe be pulling from sites that have media and an approved transcript. I honestly don't know. The auto transcript with YouTube has always been iffy, but given the fact that most mass produced media has clean dialogue, I'm sure that's helping to some extent. Well, it sure is cool. Oh, but to your other point, is it legal? There's the there's <laughs> always there's always the fair use cry, which I completely get. But fair use is what a court decides. You can't just say this is fair use. You go to court and you say this should fall under fair use. Maybe this is bad form, but I have a burner YouTube account, and if I am uploading anything that I think might get flagged or flogged, I guess is the way you're looking at it, I'll upload it to there. Uh, and if it doesn't get flagged, okay, then I'll upload it to my YouTube channel and be okay. I'm also uploading sub five second clips. So it, uh, it wouldn't be worth someone's money to go after me for that. I think this is for fun. Yes. yes. And it is a lot of fun. Like the My 80s TV, enjoy at your own risk. And if you uh, don't see your family over Christmas or you need a distraction from your family, those are two links and one book that you can be distracted for hours and hours upon end. I've been a little distracted lately preparing for HPA Tech Retreat. Yes. So tell us what is the HPA Tech Retreat for those that are uninitiated. The HPA is an organization, the Hollywood Professional Association, it's really more of an organization around technical people in the industry. It's actually combined with SIMPTI a few years ago. So SIMPTI and HPA are essentially the same group, but SIMPTI sets the standards. HPA just is more of an organization of more technically orientated people in the industry. And every year they do a tech retreat. It's in Palm Springs in California. And the tech retreat is where people present things that are cutting edge in technology in our industry. There's often some really amazing demos. There's there's a few things that are being presented. I usually do some kind of roundtable or something, and I've got a few things that are going in there uh, this year. Michael, are you doing anything for tech retreat this year? 
Yes, I'll be there with Shift, what media silo, wire drive, screeners.com. What we're showing, I can't talk about yet because one of the things HPA mandates is that you're showing something new for the first time. Um, HPA, for those who don't know, it's like NAB if it was really expensive. HPA is You where, mean to attend or for the products and stuff? To, no, to attend. If yeah, you're okay. not a Simpty member, I believe it's 1500 plus lodging. I usually cut corners and stay at a you know motel down the road if you don't want to stay at the resort where it's being held. But it is expensive, but you're getting access to people who write the standards, people who make decisions on hiring. It's not very much user oriented. These are people who shape the industry. And I know there's been blowback that information like this shouldn't be behind a gate and it should all just be free for everyone. That's what NAB is, right? Mm -hmm. Go there and that's for the masses. Not that I want to gatekeep, but you can only have a worthwhile interaction with a certain number of people. And when you start mm -hmm. opening this up to 80,000 people, I'm sorry, pre-pandemic, now we're 20 or 30, it gets unwieldy. I have to kind of respect the fact that there's a price gate to accelerate that kind of interaction. There are partnerships and relationships that I've built through HPA that I never would have built anywhere else. And if your pocketbook can stand it, I can't recommend enough that you make the trek out there and meet with everyone there. The cool thing is, though, that HPA is not for everyone. It really is NAB simmered down to a fine gravy. And it's very much on the technical side and there's not so much toys and sales and things like that. There are also a lot of lectures and talks and papers presented. But the cool thing about it is that there's usually a lot of stuff afterwards that you can really get that, the bullet points and the highlights. So yeah, you know, there have been a lot of years where I have more watched the finest people in the industry play in this very concentrated way and observed and read the papers afterwards and the read articles about it and then got some demos later when it's also been a little bit more refined. So, yeah. But anyway, but in news right now is HPA Tech Retreat registration has opened. So if, and they have also just put out the main program of talks that there are going to be. And can it's anybody go that's worry. willing to pay the price or is there like an application? Absolutely. Anybody can go. Yeah. Okay. It's not for everyone. I think right. it's not going to interest everyone, but anybody can go that can afford it and or whose who's company will send them. But like I said, not it, it is not accessible to everybody. I mean, I haven't been that many, you know, but I've certainly gotten a lot out of it anyway. You know, I think it really is. It's exciting also because it is a time when a lot of really great innovative people in the industry come together and have this conference that's a lot smaller and they actually do spend a lot more time together talking about stuff and demoing stuff and really launching the cutting edge and beyond the cutting edge. Cool. I've always wanted to try to make it up. I've heard great things about it and I've heard there's a lot of cool people that you can meet that you probably wouldn't ever meet anywhere else, even at NAB. Mm -hmm. So that's kind but of speaking a of cutting on. edge, I mean, you have something that is in the, as uh, you are a beta tester of something pretty cutting edge. Are you not? I am. So I was invited to jump on the Resolve for iPad beta and I have downloaded on my M1 and uh, my M1 iPad Pro and I have given it a good play. Not, I wouldn't say that I've worked deeply in it, but I have kicked around with it. I did a couple of small little things in it, little jobs. I tried to do changes on a big job. Didn't work, mainly because the fonts weren't there. But it is cool to see what is literally the desktop application for the most part, pieces of it running on an iPad. It's not really that dumbed down. It's not something that, that a lot of 
apps may have like said, we're going to strip it down. We're going to take tons of stuff out because it won't work on a touch device. I think Black Magic hasn't done that. They've said, you know what? Right now, here's your here's the uh, cut page, which is its own unique thing, and the color page, and do what you can with it that you can do on the desktop. It plays many different types of media, H.264, H.265, ProRes, Blackmagic Raw. And the color page is surprisingly full function. Like there's a lot of stuff in there that is on your desktop color page. And I feel like it's more of a proof of concept maybe at this point. It's look, here's what we can do. The iPad is not, it's got the power to do what you need to do. I was playing six streams of, of 1080 ProRes on it and it was very fluid. I didn't have any issues with the playback put a bunch of effects on it. And it just, I was really surprised how well that it worked. And I commend them for doing it, even though I guess technically if it's a Apple Silicon app, then it's not that hard to adapt it to the iPad. But I don't know, like it took some work. Somebody had to do some work in there. Do you have to have the material locally on the iPad or are you using cloud? No, it will, you can connect with any service that the iPad supports for media. And that may be Dropbox, that may be iCloud, your iCloud drive or whatever, but you can also plug up an SSD drive. And it feels to me like if the Files app can see it, then Resolve will be able to see it. And it can actually play the media back off the drive. It used to be that I think the iPad was built, so stuff had to get copy to the drive okay. uh, into the iPad internally, but now it can play back right off the drive. So I think it really has a good use case. The biggest question I've seen people t- ask is like, how do you plug a drive in and power the iPad at the same time? I've got three different docks and I finally found one of the three that would supply power and connect the uh, the drive. Most of them will stop powering when the drive connected. But then if you have that uh, Apple keyboard thing where it's like uh, you've, got a, you've got two USB-C ports built into the keyboard, one of those will take power while you can then plug a drive directly into the iPad. You know, they, they've said that... Um, oh, hang on, hang on, Scott. So, so you're saying if you take an iPad and then okay. you put on a keyboard and then get a dock or another power Don't adapter... Don't say it's like a computer, my friend. <laughs> I'm just saying at what point does it go from being portable hmm. like an iPad to it becoming a laptop? In which case, get a laptop. The, you know what? And that's the eternal question. This kind of thing is like, why would you ever need Resolve on on the iPad? And you know, I guess if you were the whole, what's the old trade show thing? We always say you can shoot it on the iPad, you can edit it on the iPad, and you can finish it and upload it on the iPad. But will people be doing high end work, big work? Will they be? And I don't think anyone's going to be doing like stuff on this just because they can. I think there may be a specific need. I was out after work one day and got a change on a job. And I said, shoot, I've got all this on the uh, on my SSD. I've got the iPad Pro right here of the show. I'm cutting full thing in Resolve. And I, I knew that like, okay, the cut page has limitations, but I just have to move to swap two lower thirds. But when I opened it up, I realized like, oh, okay, fonts. There's no, the iPad or the Resolve doesn't support custom fonts yet. Maybe it will someday. So that was a, a no-go. I can certainly see that that there is a, a fair amount of use case for it. They wouldn't have done it if there wasn't. Certainly people being able to make changes on the fly, you're being able to do things on set. It's This is not for Hollywood movies, but this is for the probably you know 90% of the rest of the industry. I think there's probably a use case, especially if you can connect to cloud storage, that would be really huge as well. And I'd imagine being resolved, they'll probably go there because that way you can finish your day at the office, go home. And if you have to do a quick change, like you say, or a quick upload or something like that, I'm sure that's probably a great use case for it. 
Yeah, for sure. I've seen a couple of colorists, the thing that they mentioned, as an editor, I was looking at the editorial functions, but mm-hmm. colorists mentioning what is the iPad Pro really good at? It's a fantastic display for yeah. the cost. For cost. And um, here you have grading, uh, you know, you got your media there, you can grade right on it, take that full screen and you're sitting there with a really gorgeous, um, very affordable, very portable display to do, uh, what do you do? Build looks, do some light grading, perhaps do some changes or something and send over. And it's pretty, yeah, I, th- I, th- I think the usefulness will be determined as time goes on and more features are added and people start to really start to, to play with it. I think one potential thing that might be nice about it is it might reduce a little bit of um, stress, a little bit of worry on occasion if you need to do something when you don't have your laptop or your big desktop computer. Um, are you trying to do a segue into the this, news item disc? This is the uh, the perfect segue because I don't know if you guys saw came out the other day from NBC, actually CNBC put out an article online, 10 of the most high stress jobs in the U.S. Some pay as much as $280,000 a year. Now, these things weren't ranked, but they were listed. They didn't have a one and didn't have a number two. Number, the top one was urologist. The one at the very bottom was nurse anesthetist. Anesthetist. Anest, thank you for pronouncing that. But the second one down after urologist is Film and video editor, stress level 99, medium annual salary, $62,680. Add this. Let's, let, let's give some context because this is an article oh. that, yeah, this is an article that, that CNBC syndicated, essentially. It was based on a report that ONET did, ONET Online, and they surveyed 873, if I recall correctly, different professions, and they did rank them. So there is actually a ranking if you follow the article. And uh, anyway, just wanted to give context before you talk more about it. Well, you know, I just didn't know what to think about it because you go down the list, you've got anesthesiologist assistants, a judge, you've got acute care nurse, OBGYN, you know, some real like frontline um, retail sales workers, frontline supervisor. So some serious stuff there. Uh, one that I was surprised to see was phone operator, but you've, we've had to call in for Comcast or whoever on occasion. And that's that could be a stressful job. But I don't know. I think the film and video editor one was quite surprising. But then if you go down to the bottom where they discuss it a little bit and they talk about why some of these things may be on the list, this sums it up here. Film editors may deal with clients or in-house bosses, but often face tight deadlines and the subjective nature of the client or boss's satisfaction with their work. And that, my friends, is um, why it can be stressful. There's a lot of money on the line. You're in the chair. You're responsible. And and the shit will roll downhill often. And the blame will be placed at the last person to touch it, which is like, well, the editor couldn't really make that work. I guess I get why it's on there, but I just thought it was a bit of a surprise. I don't know if either of you, I know like you don't sit in the edit chair, but you're in and around this business. So I don't know, clickbait or not clickbait. What do you think? No, I don't think it's clickbait. And there was a time when I was in the chair. What I liked about how they defined the stress is that it was stress tolerance. The job requires accepting criticisms and dealing calmly and effectively with high stress situations. Isn't that what everyone in post-production does? Because everyone is criticizing your work. They're praising it, right? They got the praise sandwich, right? This was good, but keep up the good work, right? There's all that sandwich in there. But that's what you do as a creative. (laughs) You're getting opinions by committee. So your whole job is dealing with criticism. So I think folks have to learn that it's not always, it's usually not personal. uh, And to have that kind of roll off your back, like water off the duck's back. Absolutely. Uh, but uh, I thought that was very interesting. And it, it is stressful. It certainly was stressful when I was doing it. And my hat's off to anyone who continues to do it because it can be rough. 
Yeah. You know what I've been seeing a lot of actually this week as well is the new OpenAI chatbot, the GPT-3 chatbot that everyone's been playing with. Um, have either of you played with that this week? I did play with it a little bit as in my first thing I put in, and I, I was going to post this on Twitter because I thought this would be the perfect thing to get people to talking on Twitter was like, what is better, Avid, Premiere Pro or Final Cut? Uh, oh, Premiere no, Pro, Final Cut up. Pro. No, my <laughs> I did that too. I typed that in <laughs> just so we're all on the same page. I did that too. And the answer that I got was pretty generic and not worth even causing a stir about. But oh, some of the stuff, <laughs> it very much is. Some of the stuff I've been reading coming out of it and some of the people talking who's really dug into it, it's pretty cool. I want to know more. Like, you know, we were talking about uh, it writing code for uh, like software code and programming code. And I'm like, it's just, it's, I don't know. I'm amazed at this stuff. I think it's actually important to note we shouldn't be calling it a chatbot to begin with. It is different to a chatbot. GPT-3, it's using machine learning. It is a bit more intelligent than a chatbot. So there is so a actually, bit GPT-3, is that, so explain what that is. Is that something that only that the chatbot comes from the folks that made Dolly? Is that right? Did I get that right? OpenAI, yeah. So that's just one company and GPT-3 is coming from one company. Okay. But essentially what this is reinforcement learning, generative AI, which is a little bit different to a chatbot. With a chatbot, you feed it a bunch of stock standard answers to a bunch of stock standard questions, like the ones you get on websites. That's essentially okay. a chatbot. Those have been around since the 60s and haven't really matured much. But now suddenly we've got this great maturation of more what we call intelligent AIs, which would have their own sort of, they learn, they have reinforcement learning, and they are able to take all this data off the general internet. Now the internet's got so much information about how people talk and how people create and different artists do different things and all of these bits of information that exist out there on the internet. And you can train a model, essentially. You can train it on whatever you want to train it on to understand the patterns, to see the patterns in that, and then be able to spit that back out. So really, there, there are some clever things that, that it does. The other thing that's clever about it is that whether it's a text model or an image model or a music model, it will start with absolute rubbish and then it will start refining it. It will start throwing away the bits that don't work and making patterns. That's what computers are good at. They see patterns, they make patterns. And Let me ask you a quick question. Sorry to interrupt. Let me ask you a question. Yeah. You said when it starts with... Does it, if I go into chat, the chat bot and I ask it a question, are you saying it starts with the rubbish, with the, with the question I have asked or at its inception, they started with rubbish and it just refined and refined? Like where, when you say it starts with rubbish, where does that start? If you're talking about text, it does work a little bit differently, but generally what's happening is it's creating a sentence, right? Or it's creating a paragraph or something like that. I can probably describe to you a little bit more easily what happens with images and that it starts with random pixels and it refines them and refines them and it does it so fast that you don't really notice. And similarly with text, it starts out with a bunch of rubbish and goes, okay, well, this the, to make a sentence, it should be in this kind of pattern in English. And if it's in the style of A.A. Milne, then this is the sort of pattern that we would expect to see here. And it would, might start out with a bunch of random words, and then it starts going, well, there's always an and here, and there's always a rhyming bit here, and there's always this here, and it starts putting it all together until you get something. And that's what's different about what we're seeing now, is that everything it creates is completely net new. It's not 
copying and pasting bits from other things or already inputted information. And what we've seen previously in most of the things that we're used to in what we call AI is that you feed it a bunch of information and it serves up the one that you ask for that best fits your question or your prompt. And in this case, you don't really feed it anything and it's a bit of a black box in most cases. It's actually generating something completely fresh. That So a programmer hasn't gone in and put in the answer to your question, and it's actually generating it completely fresh. That's what makes it seem so cool and so interesting. And it's fast, like it's incredibly yeah. fast. And I was probably just putting in very simple things. I'm sure you put in complex things that might take time, but I was amazed at how fast it was able to spit stuff back out. Have you played with the one, the chat, what's it called, chat GTP that, that I get that, that's going around? That's the one that came out, was it like a week or so ago that's just been all the rage? To the public, yeah. I Yeah, I had a lot of fun with it. And I think there's a few things to keep in mind is that just like on you can go on Wikipedia and edit something and put something completely false. Chatbot. I did that just to. Chat GPT. language. not a chatbot, Michael. <laughs> you can put a question in there. Like I asked it a question. I knew full well what the answer was. And it gave me an authoritative wrong answer. And it will. Yeah. And it will. So there's, mm -hmm. so you have to be very careful that uh, just like bunk entry in Wikipedia, you don't take it as this is the de facto answer. It's not but, Google. Yeah. Because everything you Google <laughs> is going to be completely right too. Oh, yes. But one of the things you brought up, Scott was, or uh, uh, Katie, was that it recognizes patterns. And when you code, that's pattern, that's repetition, that's format. And one of the things that I deal with quite a bit in side hustle world is encoding codecs, et cetera, and FFmpeg, which a lot of people know is the open source backend behind a lot of media applications. And there's a syntax to that. And I was able to say, chat GPT, write me an HLS script with FFmpeg that will give me five variants at these data rates that would be applicable for Roku. Because Roku is a deliverable, right? A VOD outlet. And so you, you asked, you, you did this? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, I think I posted it on Twitter. I gave it the parameters. I said, hey, give me an interval of seven seconds. I forget what the, the flag is, but give me an iframe at the beginning of each scene. Give me this frame size and this frame rate. And it, it did it. And that now code would have taken me hours to write because I haven't been a coder in a long time. Because not only am I generating the FFmpeg script, but now I'm saying put the outputs in subfolders, rename the playlist as XYZ. So I'm thrilled that this is going to be able to be used to bridge the gap between one application to another, because mm -hmm. now you don't have to hire an integration engineer. You can start to have an application say, I can make product A talk to product B. And I think once that gets in the, that becomes more available with the, with more current information, not 2000 or 2021, and it gets even smarter, if I can use that term, I think we're going to see a lot more innovation in that space. Yeah. You, you know, Michael, what you're talking about with the coding, I think when Copilot came out from GitHub, it was a little bit primitive. It was still learning. And then now we're seeing it being a lot better. That allowed it to help you code with prompts. There was a lot of backlash from certain coders because essentially the what it was learning from, the data set it was learning from was GitHub. It was people's code. And we're seeing this now the same. I think there's a lot of ethics, ethical and legal things that we need to work out. And I know there are some very real concerns. Now, I've been in my career for probably the last 15 years telling people not to be worried about AI and machine learning. It's not going to take your jobs. A lot of the concerns you have are not probably the concerns you should have. <laughs> 
But, Not anymore. But no, actually, right now, I think there are some very real and genuine concerns from the artist community, from the creator community, and from the coding community around these things. And it's not the issue necessarily that any old person can do these things. Of course, any old person can do these things. That's great. It certainly opens it up to the world. And I think democratizing anything is awesome, right? But I think there that some of these companies, especially those that are monetizing these products, really do have a lot of work to do to build trust within the creative communities around the fair and legal use of their work to train their models. I was speaking to an artist recently who said, look, if only we had the chance to opt in or opt out to to material being used in training models. So I think that there are some ethical considerations that probably need to be ironed out that are very real concerns from the creative community. One ethical discussion that came out of the chatbot one was about using it to write you know, school papers for you. And as mm-hmm. two school-age kids, I, and as a person who didn't like to write papers in college, I thought, oh, that would be really cool. And I think that's, I think that's a legit concern. That's That goes back to the actual application of the technology, not just the how the technology does its thing. So there's ethical discussions on both sides, like on basically the building, the back end of it and the use case now that it's done. I, and I think that goes to, you know, same with deep fakes, same with um, the AI art stuff. It's just, it is a new world, not yet decided upon, if you will. And I I don't know. So here's a question about this whole thing. Do the programmers and the creators of these tools, do they even care about the ethical applications of this stuff? Or are they just all about, we want to create the best product so we can get maybe rich off of it? Oh, I'm sure the individuals who work on these things have excellent ideas in mind of what they want to do for the world. And there are really great applications for this. There really are. And I can't speak for anybody working on these things, but I can certainly assume that we're all humans here and we all have an idea of how we can focus on the positive of the things that we do. You know, we've all worked on shows that we've thought, oh, yeah, but we focus on the positives, right? And I think there are a lot of positives. For example, just opening up the tools to people who wouldn't necessarily have them. I can give a very brief example of one way that ChatGPT3 can really make a difference in people's lives. And I've seen it a few times actually, is that folks who are not the most uh, literate or not necessarily the most literate in English are often overlooked in work and in jobs, or at least not valued in the same way. What this tool can do is have them enter the thing that they want to say, and it spits it out in perfect business language for them. Hmm, And then it levels the playing field for immigrants, for people that don't have the same level of literacy. You know, my mum, brilliant businesswoman, once said to me, a baker wants to bake. They are not a business person necessarily. They just want to bake. You have to remember that when you're thinking about funding their bakery. You know, their business proposal might not be the best, but they're a baker. That's what they do. And I think that what it does, it levels the playing field in terms of that sort of thing. So, you know, I think that those creating these things probably are focusing on those positives and are hoping that we will find a way to iron out the ethical king. What, What I think maybe we should look at is how this translates to the video world, right? I know we have to handle the text portion. I get that. But as it pertains to a lot of our listeners, when it comes to video... Katie, perhaps you can give us your insight into, you know, it's not just like an app on your iPhone where you hit a button and you have face swap, right? It's a tedious and expensive process. Wouldn't you agree? 
Absolutely, it is. In the same way is that people at home can do a certain level of visual effects. People at huge visual effects studios can do a completely different world of visual effects with the right tools. And it is a tool, and it's a tool that's being used and has been used in visual effects for some time. The same tools that we're now seeing to the, at the public are tiny little versions that are optimized for web use that have been used in visual effects for some time. One of the biggest things that you may notice is how much better stunts have, got, have looked in the last few years. And, and they're a lot more realistic. And if you look closely, you see the actor's face a lot more. And that is face swapping technology. And you know that is an area where these things have really improved. It's not just laying someone's face over like we might have done, like I used to do in Resolve all the time. No, it really is quite incredible that these models are trained on the actors' faces to learn their face, to learn their expressions, to learn their mannerisms. And then you can replace a stunt person's face, for example. Michael, um, what about you? What are your big examples, do you think? I'm actually going to take this in a slightly different direction because I'm going to share with you something that keeps me up at night. And this is what worries me. And I know that oh, no. we're the experts and <laughs> we're supposed to be sharing. Don't worry. Here is what worries me. We've seen for years that more and more folks get their education from video more than reading. And when we start to get access to face swapping or uh, uh, replicating language, when we start getting access to that in commercially available editing applications, and I'm not just talking about the big four in our industry, right? But I'm talking about on mobile apps. You're going to start to see a ish show to end all ish shows. If we thought disinformation and misinformation. Oh, a what show? An ish show. <laughs> I think I said it earlier, so it's okay. I don't know if this is what our rating is, but. Never mind. Uh, I'm just trying to be polite to the. <laughs> Let's go. We all get it. We all get it. If you thought that misinformation and disinformation through the last couple of elections was at its zenith, oh man, you have you have no idea what's coming down. We're going to start to see videos pumped out there, mm -hmm. whether it's on broadcast or not, which is dying. When we start seeing that, we will have no mechanism in place, and at least for me, I haven't seen blockchain come to fruition to a point where it's usable in, in this respect. I don't know how, as a society, I think we're in for a rude awakening. And I don't know if there's enough people that will understand the difference between real and, or as we used to say, oh. the difference between real and Memorex. Yeah. Well, you're yeah. Actually right. And that is the other big ethical thing that these companies need to deal with. We're putting these tools in the hands of people for good and for bad. Um, mm -hmm. Every technology has that potential to be used for good and for bad. We always overestimate technology and underestimate society, right? As I like to say. And there's already there are already issues, even though right now these tools, the public versions aren't that great. Uh, we're already seeing it. We're seeing it in things like revenge porn. We're seeing all kinds of nefarious uses of these technologies. And that is certainly something that I hope these companies that are really focusing on the technology on the on, on really doing the you know bringing moving things forward and it's super exciting i really do hope that they are focusing just as strongly on protecting society protecting vulnerable yeah. people from the ways that it can be used for bad and i know that the inventors of the internet didn't never imagine what it could be used <laughs> for they never Gosh. imagined that it could be used to disrupt democracies but i think now well, these things have happened and i think a lot of the people that are building these tools now at least have that hindsight and are probably a little bit more careful than they were before hopefully i always say i'm an optimist 
Well, Katie, you said uh, something that was interesting. You said um, these are tiny versions of technologies. And then you mentioned what's going on at uh, some of the biggest visual effects houses when you watch these movies. Those are not tiny versions. But I guess what is very scary is there's a middle ground between the tiny technology running in the web browser and what's going on at you know ILM. But there's middle ground and someone's on someone's very powerful desktop at home with a very smart person with some pieces of software doing revenge porn, disrupting democracies, pumping out term papers that they can sell online. That's the scary stuff. It's not the web browser, not ILM, but it's that middle ground. That's what that's I, Michael, maybe that's what was worrying you more than anything. I saw it, uh, when the Irishman came out, what, four years ago, roughly Scorsese's 30 hour mm -hmm. epic. <laughs> and it was done real well. Don't get me wrong, but there are people online who said, I can do better. And in some cases, they did things better. Now, granted, they had no cost, right? Meaning it was their time and they had no deadlines to hit, you know, being a stressful job and stuff. But they came up with some fantastic versions that that eclipsed what was done in the movie, at least. And in, that was a de-aging what, wasn't that the right. big thing about that? The de-aging of, uh, yeah. yeah. So this isn't 30 layers of abstraction from the desktop system. It's coming. And that's again, what I was worrying about. But I think perhaps maybe as you wrap up this segment, we end on something good. And that's, I think we've all Avatar, talked about the way of water. That is one of them. I can't I've wait seen, to go see it. I saw one really scathing review, but we'll leave that there. What I think may be really important for our listeners are the realities of, is this going to take my job? Because th this question comes up every time you discuss AI. And then now that non-chatbot chat GPT is here, that's going to reset people's calendars, right? Their time frame. Katie, perhaps you can give us some input as maybe uh, yeah, what you feel about that? Absolutely. Because I think I've made it very clear how I feel about these things for some time. I started looking into this probably in about 2013, this started becoming a thing. We started hearing in post-production that editors were going to lose their jobs. AI was going to take over. There's a, a wonderful, a really smart woman called Fei-Fei Li. She's Stanford, Google. She's one of the top people in this area, one of the smartest people in this area. And she said, the definition of today's AI is a machine that can make a perfect chess move while the room is on fire. And that oh, really like that. is, you know, and to me, that quote says a lot about the usefulness of it as a tool and what it can do and what it can't do, because that's something that a human can't do. The human can't do that, but a human understands that the room is on fire. And that's the difference. So what that does is it says, okay, it can be really useful to have a perfect chess move while the room is on fire. To be able to do those things that require a level of precision that are very difficult for a human and often very stressful and very slow for a human, that's where these tools are incredible, right? And then, but then what it does is it frees us up to do the things that we can only we can do. I will say it, I will stand by this, I will, this will die on this hill. A computer can never be creative. Because if you define art and you define creativity, it goes against the very definition of a computer and a computer program. And so what I think we're going to see is that people in post-production are going to be freed up from a lot of the things that just takes a big time suck. And if you have 10 hours to finish a cut, you're no longer going to be spending five of them on things that are actually probably could be done by a machine. You're going to be able to automate a bunch of that stuff and really shine, really be creative, do the fun stuff. And the other thing that I will say to any of my detractors is this. 
there will be a time that there's going to be a backlash against AI. There's going to be a lot of these machine-generated content out there. There's going to be a lot of videos that start looking the same. We already see this a little bit. I think the more that videos and things can be generated by AI, by AI if you look at something like Midjourney, you can see how it's feeding off itself and the images are starting to look more and more the same. You can pick it out in them. Um, second, you know what these AI-generated images look like. They all pretty much look the same. And I think what we're going to start seeing is a lot of homogeneity in creative industries and a lot of in, in video as uh, people start generating these things automatically. And people are going to start going a little bit against it or at least not valuing it the same because it seems to be cheap and free just like everything on the internet. So I do see that there will be a premium value put on the human input, the parts that computers can't do, because it will be seen as a more premium product. So a video that looks like it's been done bespoke, it'll be valued much more highly than something that looks like it could have been done by a computer. I have put a prediction out there and I will happily check back in 10 years. <laughs> right in the book. I think that within the not too distant future, Disney animation will start going hand-drawn again, or at least need to, because people will want to see something that is generated by a human. Wow, that is a bold prediction. And I think about uh, what's the uh, the Japanese animator? What is his name? Who still does? Yeah, like it's refreshing to see some of that stuff sometimes. So I hope you're right. I'd like to see what a, a reversion back and have a choice. We got CGI. And we have the feel of hand-drawn. It, it, it is mm. a good thing. Michael, What? Let's, let's take us out of this topic and get us to the holidays. What do you think? I think any advent in the post-production space, uh, going from cutting film to cutting tape, there was always a role for an assistant editor or an editor. You just had to morph what those tasks were, right? The core five tasks were the same. It was the other 15 tasks that changed. So I think, and I think Katie, you used a great term. I think you called it a prompt engineer, right? Yeah. So I think uh, assistant editors are going to have to learn that although I don't have to do X, Y, and Z because AI ML is doing this, I'll have to learn how to type prompts in to get some temp graphics, or I need to get some temp VO and a script for this. So there's going to be more tasks that have to be learned and the role will morph, but no editor is going to lose their job, a paying job a living wage job because of AI and ML. Very nice. We've got two predictions. Uh, some of the studios back to hand-drawn animation. And Michael says, none of us real creatives will lose our jobs to AI. So we'll check back in 10 years and we'll see uh, which one is correct. Hey, thanks for sitting down again for another uh, little episode here. And thanks to the listeners who followed us along these first few episodes. We are all getting ready to take a break for the holidays. Katie, Michael. I wish you well. wish you safe travels if you're traveling. Yeah, good times and good holidays to you. Thank you. Have a good holiday, everyone. Thanks for all your work on this. Happy holidays, you, and happy holidays, everyone else. 